you have to be honest. Not a lot of people are going to respect your story. Not a lot of people are going to like your story. But what they are going to respect is your truth and your honesty. So if anything, just keep being honest. And make sure that your truth is your strength and not your dysfunction. That's Jonathan Pelche, an opioid survivor and reintegration worker in the Wikwemkong Justice Program, located on the Wikwemkong Unceded Territory on Manitoulin Island in Northern Ontario. He's our guest on this episode of Mino Bamadzwan, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm your host, Sherry Huff. Minobamadzuan means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe. We chose that as a name for our podcast because it captures what we all hope for. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Before we get to our guest, I'd like to invite you to check out our new Thunderbird Wellness app. It takes a cultural approach to support health and wellness for First Nations. It's grounded in Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, connecting with our inherent strengths to support a return to wellness, to live a good life, Minobamadzuan. You can get the app on the App Store and on Google Play. In an earlier episode of this podcast, we spoke to Thunderbird's stakeholder coordinator and WIC Wemkong's Deputy Chief, Tim Aminica, about his work in managing the opioid and methamphetamine crisis in his home community. We are naturally outdoors peoples and getting that understanding and learning our history and our culture about all of the traditional medicine, the history of our land, our teachings, hunting, all of those areas that have been showing and proven to be effective in mental health and addictions, this has been very impactful in our First Nation community. Today, we wanted to get the survivor's perspective from that same community. Jonathan Pelche now works with prisoners, helping people reintegrate into the community. Much of that work is about helping people with their drug and alcohol addiction. Jonathan himself was addicted to opioids for years. It had a big impact on his own health, his life, and his family. To talk more about that, Jonathan joins us from Wikwemkong Unceded Territory. Welcome to Minobamadzuan. Good day, Sherry. I'm very honored to be here. Let's start off with your story. How did you get addicted to opioids? Well, my dad was a residential school survivor, and I'm the second generation. Because of that, I had predispositions to a lot of things. Um, one of them was probably addiction and other behaviors that weren't all, all, all too positive. At 21 years old, I had a surgery in Red Lake, Ontario. I had varicose veins, and that was a hereditary thing. And uh, even the doctors were kind of like uh, astonished as to, like, this young man has varicose veins. But anyway, they uh, did a procedure on my leg and uh, to remove those varicose veins, the clots. And afterwards, I was put on Percocets and Dilatas. And, uh, yeah, my, pre- my predisposition, uh, you know, I was an alcoholic firstly, but, uh, yeah, well, once I got, uh, you know, those painkillers into me, it was a whole other ball game. It was something that I took to right away. From that moment, well, that's when the drug dependency began. What impact did that have on your life once you, you know, you no longer needed the medication to support the pain from the operation? How did that then turn into an issue for you? 
it wasn't quite an issue at first. Initially, I uh, I, I was uh, very functional. Like I, I was working in the gold mines up in Red Lake, and I was working uh, Monday to Friday. Um, you know, pretty steady schedule. And uh, yes, so you know, at first those uh, the narcotics, the opiates, they actually uh, improved my work performance while I was at work. So I I would use them for work after, uh, you know, the pain was gone. But uh, yes, that did, and having to access the the narcotics uh, after the the pain was gone was another story. The doctors weren't so giving up in Red Lake with uh, the, that type of medication, so I did have to resort to. Uh, the street, I would say, <laughs> to get my medication. Non-legal sources. Yes, yes. I, uh, you know, when you when you're in those circles, you uh, you kind of know, you know, all the people who get prescriptions. There wasn't a source where somebody just had an absorbent amount of medication. These were all prescribed medications, so you could actually have a list of people who were prescribed in, in any one month. I, I took it upon myself to know all those people. You know, it's sad to say some of the more elderly people who would sell their medication, you know, to add to their old age pension. Right. A source of income for, for a lot of people, right, who are living close to the poverty line. So t- talk to us about what impact opioids and, and addiction has had on your life. You know, I can talk about the impacts uh, it had on me physically, mentally, and emotionally. Not so much spiritually, but uh, it was the spiritual aspect that kind of helped me get uh, get out of that. But I'll get to that uh, towards the end of the conversation. But physically, it, it's taken a toll on my body. I got an epidural abscess about 10 years ago now, which was from IV drug use. And uh, yeah, my L4 and L5 were dissolved under that uh, epidural abscess. And I needed required surgery to remove some of the infected uh, vertebrae. And then afterwards, I had to spend 12 weeks in the hospital under uh, IV, you know, the strongest penicillin they had. And I had to learn how to walk again. So, you know, physically, yes, that was uh, probably the tail end of it. But uh, uh, the withdrawals, I would say, were the first thing that kind of steered me away from, like, it being functional and to it being non-functional. You know, once I start to experience heavy withdrawals and up in Red Lake, there was no opiate replacement therapy clinics. There was nothing like that accessible. But you could get illicit sources right there. That was one thing that that was available. There weren't actual official programs, but. Yes. Having said that, getting the illicit stuff, getting it from people who are prescribed medication, uh, you know, I wasn't the only one going to that well for that stuff. So, you know, uh, a person's monthly prescription can run out in a matter of hours if there's enough people going there to buy them. So, you know, having to source them uh, on days, you know, in between other people's prescription dates, there were times where there was a long stretch between those days. So the withdrawal started to play uh, not just on my body physically but mentally you can't function when you're in withdrawal because all you can think about is getting your dose for that day then you can be functional but yeah you're very very preoccupied can you describe what that's like the withdrawal well i can say that i made my worst decisions that affected my family and even myself during uh, withdrawal 
this one incident I, I'll, I'll speak of, and it kind of led up to me breaking into a pharmacy and taking all the farm, all the medication out of there. But uh, I was in withdrawal for about three days, and uh, and and I had no no inclination that I was going to go to this uh, pharmacy and go break into it. I just couldn't handle the added stress. And then uh, my my partner at the time, she wasn't a user, so she wasn't very sympathetic to my withdrawals. It was more like a money pit for her, so she didn't have no sympathy there. And, uh, you know, I left that night uh, arguing over dishes. So I, I share this story with the people I work with also, that when we leave home, that we should leave home uh, in a, with a smile on our face and not angry. So I left angry and uh, I went to the bar to try to subside my withdrawals and use alcohol to not feel the, the you know, the withdrawal from the opiates. And I overdid it. And on my way home, I guess uh, in a blackout, I uh, broke into the pharmacy. But I came to the next day knowing what I did. And uh, I'd have to say that was the worst of my withdrawal. And I, uh, it, to speak about how it makes you feel, it makes you feel very desperate and desperation and not actually looking at the big picture. It makes you very narrow-minded also. You talked about the impact of addiction physically and the drugs physically. What impact did addiction have on your mental health? I'll have to admit, and I'm sure you've heard this before from other sources where they say uh, an addict will, uh, during addiction, will visit like uh, three places if they keep on going, and one of them will be the hospital. One of them will be the psychiatric uh, hospital, and the other one will be the morgue. I haven't visited the morgue yet, but I can tell you that I've been to uh, the hospital, just like I said with my epidural abscess, and I have been to uh, the psychiatric hospital on not just one occasion, but three different occasions. I've been formed. Uh, I've been formed uh, to form three twice and form number one once, which is the 15-day involuntary stay. I'm not sure what those are, the form. You say you've been formed. They're psychiatric forms. So uh, a psychiatrist has to sign off on you and say if uh, you're unable to speak for yourself. So your next of kin or whoever's your caregiver will uh, sign the form and say this person needs to be in a psychiatric coma, needs to be looked at. So, uh, yes, I... uh, I can uh, I can say that I didn't actually you know I can probably I don't like to think of this as minimizing it but the first time I was uh, actually put into under a 72 hour watch in a psychiatric ward um, it had to do with methadone I was drinking the night before and I was heavily intoxicated and uh, a friend of mine who was on methadone was uh, was with me and uh, he pulled out one of his bottles of methadone and he said you want a sip. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. So I guess I, 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 I chugged the whole thing. And uh, he was on a high dose. So my partner at the time, she became really concerned because she thought, you know, he's going to die. So she phoned the ambulance and then the ambulance phoned the police. And then they asked, like, what did he do? And they said, uh, well, he, he drank that whole bottle of methadone. And then they said, well, is he trying to kill himself? But I didn't, I don't remember anything. I just woke up on a gurney in the hospital handcuffed. And uh, I tried to tell them I wasn't, I'm not, I don't need to be here. But in their, from their perspective, I guess they thought I was trying to commit suicide. Wow. You know, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear that this happened to you. And, and, and I, and I'm really 
thankful that you've survived, you've made it through, and that you're here to to share your story with us. And I know that part of your story has been your involvement with the law and ending up sometimes on the wrong side of the law because of addictions. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, the role of being in the prison system, you know, and the, how that interplayed with your addiction cycle? Both those, uh, me being a, a former prisoner and being a former addict, they're very interwoven. Um, one couldn't have happened without the other, I suppose. And I say that not just because all my addictive behaviors and all that stuff led me to prison, but not only when I was at prison, I learned a lot more about the, the drugs that got me there. I learned how to use needles in prison. So, you know, that was one of the things that, uh, you know, I took away from prison and I brought back to my addiction. So, like, I, when I say they're very interwoven, then, you know, it it uh, I couldn't have, uh, I can't say it any more than that. And, uh, you know, all the all the behaviors, all the behaviors, I don't want to say they were rooted in my addiction, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, fully, because I, I do... I do have other traumas in my life that, you know, and other things, other factors that play into, you know, why I was using in the first place. So, yes, very interwoven. When you were in jail, was there much help there for you from the, from the jail system? I can honestly say um, when you're in transition from the street into jail and you're in remand, there's not much services there for you because you're not yet classified. So your, your case is still in the courts. You know, there's not much uh, services there for uh, that that process in, in, within that process. But uh, as soon as you get sentenced, then you can go to places where there are correctional facilities, say in the provincial system, where they do have more programs and they do have like uh, more accessible stuff for you. But uh, there's more programming in the federal system and uh, some people might not agree with me here if uh, they're listening and they've been to the federal system some people might not agree with me but uh, you know from my perspective there was more accessible stuff in the federal system and I knew this when I uh, was in the provincial system and I I had a string of offenses one time and I asked specifically to be in the federal system because I wanted to access what, what help they needed you know I could get there and uh, if I can be totally honest with you, Sherry, I didn't even know what a medicine wheel was for years and years and years. And the one place that I did find out what a medicine wheel was, was in federal prison. So, you know, and that was like 33 years old. I think that's, that's true for, for a lot of our people, not having that connection to culture. Um, so having that some access some, you know, access through the federal system, through, you know, connection to culture. Did it have an impact? Did it, did it help? Well, I, you know, I say this to all the men and women I work with and anybody who will, uh, who participates in our programming. I never forgot who tried to help me along the way. And I will never forget who tried to help me. Well, whether or not I, I accepted the help or whether it actually helped me during that time, um, you know, it's, it's, but I can tell you that today, when I look back and I reflect on all those people that tried to help, um, I'm paying it forward now, you know, it, and it did help. 
in, in the long run. So, you know, the thing that I urge people, if they're in the midst of their addiction and they've uh, turned down help from people, um, don't feel like uh, that you can't ever go back and ask for that help again from those people. Because, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, go through life. And uh, I, I take this one line from a quote, you know, if you don't ever ask, the answer will always be no, you know. Over the years, all the help that I did get, yes, it, it did help me. That's a really good answer, you know, because it, it does show that one plus one doesn't necessarily make two, but it does contribute, you know, everyone does contribute to that overall journey that we're all on. We might not realize it at the time. Jonathan, I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the medical help you may have used over the years. I understand that you crossed paths with an infamous doctor in Sudbury, Dr. Coote. What happened with him? Oh, yes, uh, Dr. Alfred Coote, yes. I'll give you, like, the first time I ever, ever I ever met him. I got my injury while I was working in the mine, so it, it, legitimate, it was a legitimate injury, like, and, and it was, like, documented from the mine with all the WSIB papers and all that stuff. So I got a legit prescription from a doctor in Thunder Bay after the accident, and my back was, uh, I uh, blew my S12, my S12 vertebrae, one of those ones that went inwards, the bulge went inwards, so I was having a hard time walking. I haven't been on opiates already. I was already an opiate user, so to get a legit prescription was actually all right, you know. But I, I had to get it refilled because I got it filled in Thunder Bay initially. But living in Sudbury, I, I was on the injury list. But I always knew about this doctor, then Dr. Coots. Everybody who was using always said, if you want to get some uh, oxys, you've got to go see Dr. Coots. He's not just going to give them to you, though, if you don't have a prescription. If you already have a prescription, he'll refill them. And on my first appointment with him, I can tell you, he walked in the room and he said, what can I do for you? And then I start to tell him about my back. And then he says, no, no, no. What can I do for you? What do you want? And I said, ah, well, it's my back. And then he stopped me again. So I showed him my pill jars, and that's all he did was look, and he read them. He said, okay, you got uh, 20 milligram Oxycontins here, and you got 30 of them. Uh, so he says, do you want 40 milligram ones? And I can give you a, a month's worth, of, which will be 100. And I said, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> and it was that easy. It was really that easy. And I went back every month because I had to go in person to go get my prescription filled. And I went back every month for over five years. And it made it quite easy to continue my addiction. Uh, not only that, uh, it got me into other things too. I started selling my prescription also. So it was something to count on as an addict. But for the most part, I would say that he enabled my addiction for years. What do you think about that? What do you think about the, the practice of, of doctors enabling, providing prescriptions. One of the things that, you know, I know that some hardcore addicts will say like the, the biggest drug dealers are the doctors. <laughs> I don't want to call Alfred Kuda drug dealer, but he was very liberal. Like uh, he was very, like he gave out his p prescriptions. He ended up having troubles and that ended up being why he wasn't able to prescribe me anymore. I don't know how many patients were going to see him, but uh, definitely you know, I can honestly say that hadn't been for Dr. Coote, uh, I probably would have saved myself five years of uh, 
you know, mm-hmm. other than that, I would have had to go back to the sources on the street and go to those kind of sources and pay for every pill. So let's talk a little bit about your family. Um, I know that the addiction, um, uh, your addiction has, has had an impact on family, specifically um, your son. Um, your son overdosed uh, when he was a teenager. Was that when you hit rock bottom, you think, when that happened? Do you know, Sherry, I, I used to be embarrassed to say this, and I used to be shameful to say that that incident didn't change anything. It didn't change anything because I was in the in the height of my addiction then, and I was actually descending more deeply into it. And, uh, you know, then I was very concerned for my son. I There's no doubt in my, in my heart nor in my mind. Um, that I was very concerned for him and but uh, part of that concern was uh, a lot of guilt and shame also because he wouldn't have been in that position hadn't it been for my my own behavior and him witnessing me doing what I was doing and having said that I was supplying him with you know a pill here and there back then Uh, I wasn't uh, his source or anything like that but no even before that incident he would come to me with withdrawals and my empathy in me would say you know I don't want to do this son but you know and I feel like such a hypocrite you know like when I think about that behavior but that was the deepest and the most hurtful thing that I can think about when I think about my addiction having that whole thing with my son and being a user and him being a user and us you know using you know under the same roof it was uh yeah but ultimately, no, it wasn't my rock bottom. It was his rock bottom, though. You know, one of the things that I'm really struck by this conversation with you, Jonathan, is your courage, but also your, I guess, mostly your courage to be honest and honest with yourself. What role has, has honesty played in your wellness? Well, honesty for me was uh, something that was... Uh, it was just the word. If we think about the grandfather teachings, and I had one uh, knowledge keeper say this in one of our programs. He said, uh, you know, the grandfather teachings look really nice on those paintings up on the wall and all the, but right, you know, but uh, a lot of people, they're just nice words up on the wall and that we have to really examine what they really mean, not like in a book or anything like that because we're not going to find the answers there. And if we look at the eight-pointed star teaching and uh, the journey within, and uh, that one really impacted me too. So I start to examine the teachings and how they pertain to me. And I couldn't find how they really pertain to me, but I found the source there. And I found out that honesty was, you know, was free and that I could use it freely. And that dishonesty, and I already knew this, that dishonesty came at a price. And that it was at the mostly at the price of uh, the people that I loved. You know, when they trust you and they believe that you're not going to do it again and you say it over and over, uh, this is the last time, son, this is the last time, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm done, you know, and then, and then it's not. You know, stuff like that and lying. So, yes, examining those uh, teachings and honesty so having said that, I uh, when I when I came out of that and I really thought about myself, I had to make honesty a truth in my life, and uh, and after that things started to uh, 
look more p positively, at least uh, from the inside, and what I was expressing going outwards. It wasn't so angry anymore. It wasn't so, I don't want to talk about that. But uh, definitely, I don't... I don't feel that I've gotten to where I'm at right now by being dishonest. Yeah, because as a addict, I was very manipulative. I was an opportunist, and I wasn't honest. And I, I can see all that now in retrospect. Sounds like culture has played a major role in your life, even though, as you said, it you know it was years, um, you know, before you you knew what a medicine wheel was, um, and and started then learning teachings, you know, over time after that. Can you can you share what role, what impact culture has had in your life, getting you to this point where you are now? My relationship with culture, um, like I said uh, earlier, my, my exposure to just the medicine wheel was like when I was 33 years old. But that didn't mean that I kind of, I, I was just totally ignorant to culture. Um, in 2001, I... Uh, before I was 33, I was uh, in a rehab uh, here on uh, in our community, Rainbow Lodge. I received an eagle feather there from my uncle. I can tell you that I, the only reason that I was going to that rehab that day, uh, my, my motivation wasn't sobriety. My motivation was my liberty. I was uh, in custody, and the only way they would let me out was to go to rehab. I got bail, but with, uh, with the agreement that I would go to rehab and complete it. Otherwise, if I didn't complete it, I would be going back to jail. So, you know, my motivation at the time was freedom. And uh, so I did jump through the hoops of uh, Rainbow Lodge. I went through the program. But while I was there, my uncle was so proud of me. He was like, oh, my God, Jonathan, you're making all the right choices now. I'm so happy. Your life's going to be so good now. I'm like, oh, geez, uncle. And But just when he was saying this and knowing what I already knew, you know, it hurt me, like, you know, and uh, and that's when I think about dishonesty in my life. You know, I could have mm -hmm. told him, Uncle, no, I'm just here because I want to get out of jail. And uh, that would have saved him a little bit of uh, what he was telling me. But uh, at the end of when I completed, uh, he, he came at, at our completion banquet and he had this bag and then he pulled out all these eagle feathers and there was eight participants going through that cycle and uh he said i'm here to give an eagle feather to my nephew because i'm so proud of him i'm so proud he's making this choice to sober up and improve his life and again this is in front of a whole crowd of people and i'm thinking oh no you know why do i feel so you know i felt it but he brought feathers for everybody because he didn't want to leave anybody out and uh, I, I still carry those, that feather right now today. It's actually sitting right in front of me right now. And I use it for strength. So I did have exposure to stuff like that. And that feather is a big part of my healing. Because it wasn't then that I got the feather teaching. But uh, in 2005, uh, after getting out of Stony Mountain Penitentiary, I uh, went to Guelph, Ontario. I was at a cognitive behavior uh treatment facility down there called Stonehenge Therapeutic Community. So while I was there, I was a federal inmate and I accessed an elder there. And uh, he gave me the feather teaching on the first day I met him. And uh, from that, for, from then on, I, uh, I was very, very, I can tell you I was very impacted and that, that feather teaching spoke to me 
because it speaks to choices and all the choices we make and uh, that a ruffled feather can be brought back to you know its original shape with some nurturing components and uh, so when I uh, so when I got that feather teaching I was very excited and I and I knew I had a feather I actually knew I had a feather so I went and got that feather but when I got that feather because I did exactly what I wasn't supposed to do with the feather because part of the feather teaching is that you're supposed to have the feather accessible somewhere where you can see it not a you know open in its case or anything but at least the case is somewhere where you can see it so you know it's not supposed to be put in your sock drawer it's not supposed to be put under your bed it's not supposed to be put in a box in your closet you know it's supposed to be out where you can access it and uh because i i felt so shameful about what my you know like when my uncle presented me that i felt like i didn't deserve it so i didn't pick it up and that's one thing that you have to do with feathers too is you got to pick them up well when i after the feather teaching i got my feather sent to me and it's this treatment facility and it was deteriorated there's pieces of it missing and it didn't look as really nice as i remembered it and i was really disappointed and then when I told the, the elder who gave me the feather teaching and I showed him, he, uh, he felt really bad for me. But there was a lesson in that because the feather is a representation of you. And when I looked at that feather, it was actually, it, it spoke to me and it spoke to my journey. And it spoke, and the, the, for me, that was even more amazing because how real it was. And it was then that I honestly started to believe in the culture and the teachings because this feather teaching spoke to me plus my feathers that I got before from uh, my uncle and uh, my teacher Kelly who gave me the feather teaching he felt so bad that my feather was deteriorated he gave me his feather that he gave me the teaching on and I still have those like I said right in front of me today and I still use them to give the feather teaching and I tell this story to all the men and women I work with that's beautiful you know, it, you mentioned a, a few um, a few different programs, you know, in in your story, and and um, that you had the you know benefit of them, whether it was through um, you know a federal penitentiary program or or perhaps a community program. I I think what I, I I wanted to get your reflections on some of the programs that we see in our communities. Um, not every community, of course, has access to to some of these programs. The drug um, replacement programs um, like methadone and suboxone. What role did these programs play in your wellness journey? Honestly, before I started taking opiate replacement therapy, I honestly didn't believe in it. I really honestly didn't because I didn't see any results from the circles I was walking in. The only one source that I did see results from was from my son. And I didn't think about him initially when I was trying to think about, you know, what I'm going to do with, uh, what am I going to do with my addiction? How am I going to get off this? And I always knew that the withdrawals were, you know, I could have good intentions until the withdrawals kicked in. And then those good intentions are pretty much like out the window because you just can't handle the withdrawal. And, uh, so when I came back to Wiki, after I got out of the hospital with my epidural abscess and I had to learn how to walk again, I literally came back to Wiki on a wheelchair. And I graduated from a wheelchair to a walker, from a walker to uh, a cane, and then from a cane back to my own feet. But uh, it wasn't until I was in my, in my cane stage that I uh, decided, uh, you know what, 
I, I was still being prescribed medication because of the surgery, because of the epidural abscess and all that pain that I was going through. So, but I knew that I was going to stop. So I decided one day, you know, I better, I better do something about this. And it just so happened there was a methadone clinic here that was open just probably 10 months before. And uh, because I remember their first year anniversary, I was already on the program and I was very happy to be there. But anyway, I walked in there and it was very, it was the hardest thing for me to do. I mean, like, I don't want to say it's the hardest thing, but it was, if I can compare it to anything that I've had to do before, I've had to turn myself in before to the police, knowing that I'm not going to be let go. And for me, it was, it was kind of a similar uh, experience where it took all my courage just to walk through there, not, uh, you know, not knowing what I, I kind of knew what I was going to get into, but I didn't, you know, like I said, it was really hard for me to believe in the results. But again, I thought about my son and that incident when he OD'd and I didn't want to give him drugs anymore after that incident. And, uh, and one of the suggestions I had for him was uh, methadone. And so was his mother also. It worked for him. So I thought about him. I learned about that. I, I thought about that lesson from my own child. And uh, if it works for him, it's got to work for me. Is uh, you know, is the attitude I had when I walked through that door. But it was scary. Because, uh, you know, a lot of what we do, a lot of our coping mechanisms, a lot of our routines, a lot of everything is tied into our addictions. And even that change alone was uh, scary for me. Like, uh, well, am I going to be successful? Am I going to fail? Am I going to, you know, what's going to happen? And one of the things, too, I'll just go on to this, is as addicts, we subscribe to instant gratification. And... Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I was an addict because it would be, you know, right now or here, here. And uh, having subscribed to instant gratification, um, you know, and going to a methadone clinic, you don't see the, the payoffs right away. You actually don't see the payoffs. You don't see, you know, anything at the end of the tunnel right away. And uh, you might be stable and stuff like that, but uh, you don't see, like, what's the purpose of this? Like, where am I going with this? What am I going to do with my life? Um, but that's one of the be good things about our methadone clinic here in the community is there's accessible programs there. There's bulletin boards with programs, activities in the community that you could access. There's counselors in the back. There's knowledge keepers. There's smudging if you want, you know. It's all there. And, uh, you know, and I think that was a big difference between uh, an urban methadone clinic as opposed to our methadone clinic here. So in, in Wiki, the methadone program was just one one element of supports that it, it kind of provided, a, a, a it helped facilitate connection to some of those other methods. Like you said, the cultural connections, the knowledge keepers, the counseling, all these other, other supports that you, you could have access to. Yes, and you know, that was, uh, that was just, the, the one place like the methadone clinic but there was the ontario works program too uh I, I i can't believe i can't remember what it's called but it's called asi the acronym <laughs> it's addiction services initiative yeah that's it and they they helped out quite a bit with uh transportation to the methadone clinic because i lived on the outskirts uh, we're broken up into five satellite communities and i lived in one of the furthest satellite communities so to get into the, uh, the the main village to access my dose for the day, uh, I needed rides, and uh, 
so I didn't have the means to pay a taxi every day or to ask somebody to drive me every day. So, uh, you know, that, that service actually helped with the transportation and it, uh, it helped with other things too. It helped with like uh, food vouchers. If you did well, you had good uh, urinalysis, they, they've uh, rewarded you with, you know, not like money or anything, but they rewarded you with a, you know, a $25 gift voucher, you know, to go get groceries and stuff like that, milk and bread. You know, that kind of stuff really helped. When you first started talking about the methadone program, you know, you said you, you didn't believe in it. It wasn't something that, that you liked necessarily for yourself, maybe for others. But now that you've gone through it, are you a proponent of methadone now or are you still not quite sure? I'm a fierce advocate now. I find myself sticking up for that methadone clinic more than I've ever thought that I would because I, I, I believed entirely that was a great service here going to help lots of people and I still believe that. I'm in circles with other people sometimes and they have their own perceptions of that place and they'll say bad things like oh you know I know somebody who goes there and uh, you know the doctor's not lowering them even though they want to be lowered and I'm like well they're probably not telling you like the whole story because uh, the doctor worked with me but I worked the program the way it was supposed to be worked like I worked it without doing any drugs on the side and there we, we had to submit two urinalysis a week. So, and those had to be clean in order for you to get carries in order for you to start lowering your dose. Because if you're still using and you want to lower your dose, they're not going to lower your dose. They're, they won't. And, uh, you know, they're because, you know, and that's one of the things that I've, I, one of the arguments that I've heard in one of the debates, the uh, part of the discussions is that, that one is they're not lowering their, their doses, but I always say you have to ask them the full story and you, we're not going to get it from the methadone clinic because it's a medical service. It's confidential. There's no way they're going to release. Yeah. They're not going to release that information. So all you're ever going to hear is the bad stuff. But if you want to hear the good stuff, you know, maybe talk to me. But for the most part, you're not going to hear that there's food in the fridge or that their mom's home after school or, hey, you know, like they're home on weekends. They got a little bit of money to spend or they bought a new car. You know, you're not going to hear that, you know. These days, I, I will stand up for that service here. I will always use myself and as an example. And I find a lot of people are receptive to that. And it's it's a good example of success, a success story with the methadone program. Like you said, bad news tends to travel fast and questions tend to, you know, get raised and, and, and you know, people not necessarily understanding or seeing the full picture. But, but when we can, you know, lift up success stories like yours, it helps to um, help maybe help people understand more about the potential of these programs. Yes, and that's, that's one thing that I did with Tim Almanica. Tim Almanica was one of the... I don't want to say he was the sole person that believed in me, but he was one of many person that believed in me. And, uh, you know, I owe him a lot of credit for, uh, you know, taking me on his trips to uh, advocate for places like this on other First Nation communities early in his work, what he was doing. And a part of those uh, trips was uh, guest speaking, keynote speaking in front of uh, service providers and for, you know, police officers. As for, so for even, even for me to talk in, in front of police officers was something like 
uh, I would have thought was taboo in the past because I would have never ever been uh, been talking to police officers unless they were interrogating or whatever <laughs> or trying to get some uh, information from me, you know. But I always exercise my right to remain silent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you haven't exercised your right to remain silent here. So, Jonathan, you've you've shared so much about your story um, and 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 how you cope with addictions, but. I can't imagine that makes up everything of who you are today. I mean, you work today as a reintegration worker in Wikwemkong. Talk to me about who you are today and where you find strength. Well, I can tell you that I find strength in my work. And uh, there was a time in my life where I used to hear people who were in my position or they were in helping people in the community. And uh, they used to say, you know, uh, when I used to ask them, so what do you do? And some of them say, I work for the people. You know, uh, the work that I do is for the people. And I, and I can honestly say that I was, back then I used to think that was really, really cheesy. And, uh, you know, maybe it was just a cliche that they're saying and really nice to think to say. And uh, so I, I, that's the, the way I used to think about it. But now that I'm working for the people and that I'm, my work does help people, I, I, I totally fully understand that, what that means. And I know I'm very proud to say that when I say that today, that I, I'm doing my job for the people. And having said that, though, my life is not just about addiction. You know, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a son. You know, there's very, very many aspects to us. I feel too, and all that stuff. Just being an addict is not who I am. It's who I was. And it's part of me. And it's part of my strength now. Awesome. I think, you know, just to, to close up our conversation today, Jonathan, I'd like to ask our guests, you know, what brings them hope at, at, at the end of our conversation and, and, and sharing what you've shared? What gives Jonathan Pelche hope? If we go back to the teachings... The teachings always give me hope because within our teachings is our truth. And we, we can find the truth, not just one truth, but we can find truth uh, as a community also. And, uh, you know, for me, that's so true. I, uh, ever since I've been, uh, you know, recovering, um, it's been, I've, I've been seeing things that uh, I didn't notice before. I think my eyes were closer to them because of my addiction, but, you know, and I could use this as an example, and all Anishinaabe people feel this way. Like when they see an eagle, it's like, wow, I'm supposed to be here right now. You know, oh, wow, I feel so it's awesome. It's a sign. It's a sign. And uh, I've been <laughs> seeing a lot of, uh, not eagles, but I've been seeing a lot of signs in my life. And uh, mm. a lot of good people have been walking my way. And I'm finally feeling the benefits of, like, uh, my recovery. Like I said earlier, you know, I, w I subscribed to instant gratification. And I was used to having my payoff now. And if I didn't have my payoff now, I gave up. But uh, the teachings have taught me that, you know, the payoff it doesn't necessarily have to come, nor do you have to get paid off for doing something good. You just have to just keep doing good and everything's going to fall into place and that's how it's worked for me again the number one ingredient there is honesty you have to be honest not a lot of people are going to respect your story not a lot of people are going to like your story but what they are going to respect is your truth and your honesty so if anything just keep being honest and make sure that your truth is your strength and not your dysfunction oh 
Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on to Middle Bamadzwin today. Oh, thank you. Just keep walking the good life, right? Absolutely. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this podcast, please share a review and offer a rating. It helps us reach more listeners. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can search us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ThunderbirdPF. Lapi Anishik. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Sherry Huff.